running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started, run, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked into the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture that we read a few moments ago from John chapter 20. A few weeks ago, we started a study in the gospel according to John. We got to up halfway through chapter 3. We've taken a break this morning and jumped ahead. I didn't want to leave John, uh, the gospel of John. And so we've just jumped ahead to chapter 20. Before we look at this passage, let's pray and ask the Father. To teach us. Our Father, we bow before you, overwhelmed that we're able to come together again as a congregation. Our Father, thank you for how you have protected us in this last year, how you've kept us, how we haven't lost a one, how you have fed us and kept us during this time. As your people, weekly taking your word out into our homes, into our lives.
Our Father, thank you for bringing us together again to sing, to pray, to speak with you, not just as individuals or just as a family, but as a congregation, as a church family. Our Father, we come together as always, as a congregation of priests, not just a congregation of prophets who take God's word out into Fayette County, out into the Mid-South each week through our lives, through our words, taking the gospel out. But Father, we also come as your priests to bring the world before you and the world around us before you. Father, right now it's springtime, it's planting time. We pray for our farmers, not just the farmers of Christ Presbyterian, but the farmers of Fayette County. We pray that you would give them a good planting season, give them weather that's appropriate. We pray that That, Father, in the fall, there will be a great harvest, a real blessing to this county. We pray, Father, for everyone in this room, in their vocations, in their businesses, in their callings. Father, prosper them, for it all comes from you. We're not self-made people. We only live and move and have our being by your strength, by your power, by your grace. Everything we have comes from you. So we ask these blessings. And now we ask, Father, as we open your word, the word that you had John take down, that you had him write, we pray that you would speak to each one of us where we are this morning. John Sartell cannot teach, cannot preach, so it will make any difference in anyone's life. Father, you know that I know that. And I believe these people know that. And so together, we ask that we would hear your voice in our hearts in these next few minutes. We're just your children asking their father to teach us. Teach us one more time, Father. Tell us a story one more time. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Are you learning to believe? Who were the people, who were the players in this drama that we read in the first 18 verses of John chapter 20? We can divide this drama into two scenes. We're going to look at both scenes this morning. The first scene involves Mary of Magdala, Peter, and John. What do they have in common? All of them were Jewish. All of them, all three, were from the northern province called Galilee. All three were followers of Jesus. Remember, Peter and John, they were numbered with the original 12 that Jesus called. Mary of Magdala is introduced in Luke chapter 8 as a woman who had been possessed by demons. 
We read in that chapter that Jesus cast seven demons out of her life. In scripture, we know her as Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. Magdala was a resort town, a town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where Roman soldiers, Roman dignitaries, Roman officers came to party and play. After Jesus freed her from the demonic powers, she became a devoted disciple. She was present at the crucifixion of Jesus with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with another Mary who we are told was the wife of Clopas. All three, Peter, John, and Mary of Magdala, were believers. They believed. In fact, they weren't just believers. They were part of an inner circle that were always around Jesus, whether he was north in Galilee or whether he was south in Judea and Jerusalem. Peter and John, they were so close to him. They had been at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the twelve that critical, crucial point in the middle of his ministry. He took them apart to Caesarea Philippi and he asked the question, who do you say I am? It was a banner day in the life of the apostles. It was a banner day in the life of Jesus. Who do you think I am? And they had for well over a year witnessed Jesus do what only God could do just by command. He made the blind to see. Just by command, he made the paralyzed to walk. Just by command, he healed the lepers. Just by command, he stopped storms. Just by command, he raised the dead. They'd seen all this. And it came time for him to ask, now who do you say that I am? They would never forget that day. They got it right. They said, you're the Christ. You're the Christ the son of the living God. You know, Jesus forces that question on all of us if we hang around him. It might be in worship like this, a service like this. It might be in Sunday school. It might be in a Bible study in your high school. might be in a men's study or a women's study in youth activities. Do you remember when he asked you that question? I thought about that this week. I thought about when he asked me that question. Who do you say that I am? When did he ask you that question? Maybe he asked it when you were young in your elementary years. Maybe he asked it when you were in college and you were dealing with a secular culture that was causing you to question what you had learned in church or what you had learned in your home. Maybe you were married and raising a family. But somewhere along the way, if you hang out with Jesus, he'll ask you, who do you say I am? When I was came to this part of the message as I was writing it, I thought back a few years to a friend of mine. It was an Easter Sunday morning, and he was in 
this, the church where I was preaching, he was with his wife. That afternoon, she came to him in the middle of the afternoon and said, what's happened to you? You're different. Something's happened. And he sat her down. And he said, it happened this morning in the worship service. He laughed and he said, for the first time in my life, I believed. What had happened? Jesus had asked him the question, who do you say I am? That had happened to Peter and John. It happened to Mary Magdala. Know this, Peter, John, and Mary had all looked Jesus in the eye and said, we believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you say, John, why are you emphasizing this? Well, I'll tell you. Because on this specific morning that we read in John 20, on that specific morning, their faith did not seem non-existent. It was non-existent. Over and over again, since they had been asked who they thought he was, he had told them that it was necessary for him to die a cruel, hard death, to die an atoning death. He had told them that after he died, he would return. After he was successful in disclosing his identity and they understood who he was, he spoke constantly about his mission. That was exactly what happened. You know the story. The religious authorities were seeking to put an end to Jesus. He was claiming to be Messiah. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming deity. This was blasphemous and it had to end. This was not good for the nation. He was betrayed by one of his own. He was crucified by his own nation. But all this was a part of his plan. He had told his disciples, as I said, he had told his disciples over and over again, he had come to do exactly that, to give his life a ransom for their sins. His deity would once more be proven by the greatest miracle. He would be buried, but he would walk out of that tomb. Specifically on the third day. Now here we are. All that's happened. Here we are with Peter, John, and Mary of Magdala. That morning, they were not at the tomb waiting for him to come out. Mary had come to the tomb with some other women. John doesn't mention other women. He's focused on Mary of Magdala. In the other Gospels, we read that Mary, the mother of James and John, was with her. They had come to do what? They had come to anoint a corpse. That's why they were there. Peter and John 
They didn't even go to the tomb. They were, they, they were distraught with all the other disciples. None of them were waiting for a resurrection. They were not expecting him to rise. They were not expecting him to return. Their testimony is best expressed by those two men that we read about in Luke 24. It was after the crucifixion. It was that third day, the very morning that Jesus rose. And they're on their way home. It's over. Remember, Jesus shows up. And they're animated, they're grieving, they're talking with each other, agitated. And Jesus asked them, what's wrong with you guys? What are y'all talking about? And they said, are you a visitor in Jerusalem? You, you must be because you don't know what's, what's, you don't know what's happened. They told them about Jesus being crucified. <laughs> they were talking to Jesus about his crucifixion. Mm. What did Jesus say to them? Or what did he say to them? What did they say to him? It's, verse on, it's in your scripture sheet there. Luke 24, 21. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you see it? We had hoped. We once had faith, but it's no more. We don't hope that anymore. The hope is gone. He's dead. He's not the Messiah. I have said this to you before, but it's imperative that you understand it. The secular world does not understand it. The scholars of this age do not understand it. Most modern scholars who refuse to believe that Jesus is a son of God. Most modern scholars who, who say the miracles of Scripture, they're lies. They're just myths. The miracles of Jesus are just myths. The resurrection couldn't have happened. It was impossible. And they say something like this. Here's their reasoning. We live in a modern scientific age. It's just impossible for God to become flesh, if there is a God. It's just impossible for someone to do it. They'll ask, have, have you ever seen, you ever gone to a funeral and seen the person a few days later walking around? It's never happened. It's impossible. In the end, their argument rests on the fact that they are modern and scientific. Listen to me. Here is where their argument fails completely. I have an assignment for you today. You see, they look back and say, oh, that age back there, that's unscientific. They weren't modern. Well, you spend this afternoon, you spend this week, you spend next month, you spend the rest of this year looking for anyone in the Gospels of that day who was expecting the resurrection. No one was. It was just as absurd and unscientific in the first century as it was in the 21st century for Jesus to come back from the grave. When, when Paul preached at Mars Hill in Athens, 
an intellectual center of learning in the world. What did they say? The same thing that the modern scientific age is saying. They laughed at Paul. They laughed at him. When he spoke to Agrippa and Festus in that courtroom and told them about the resurrection, they said, Paul, you're mad. You've lost your mind. It was just as absurd and unscientific in the first century it was as it is in the 21st century for Jesus to come back from the grave. Bless Mary. She had come to the tomb, but it was only to anoint a corpse. Peter and John, they weren't even there. It was hopeless. They only came because Mary came back and said, his body's missing. And not one of them said, he did it. They said, we got to go find a corpse. Our modern culture, our postmodern culture, fails in another way. They fail to acknowledge that the entire Old Testament, explain this if you will, the entire Old Testament prophesies not only the Messiah's coming, but prophesies his death and prophesies his atoning death and prophesies his resurrection. It's all through the Old Testament. What does Jesus say to those two disciples, you know, the ones that were going home, quitting, going to Emmaus? What does he say to them when they say, we had hoped? Look at it. Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. This is an exclamation point. You're foolish. You're slow of heart to believe what the prophets, what the infallible, inerrant word of God has said to you. He does not say, you fail to remember what I spoke to you. He says, you fail to speak, to, to, to understand what the prophets wrote. You fail to, to listen to them. Our postmodern culture certainly fails to acknowledge how Jesus spoke plainly and in detail about his death and resurrection. They failed to acknowledge that these people in the first century thought his resurrection was as impossible as the 21st century moderns do. That's why when he rose from the grave, he just didn't arrive once for everyone to see and then disappear. He hung around for 40 days over and over and over again, appearing to the disciples, appearing There were 500 people at one time that saw him. He goes to Galilee so that they'll know. I've returned. So now that you understand this context and the players in this passage, I want to shift gears and focus just briefly on Mary Magdala's encounter with Jesus that morning. The day begins with Mary Magdala going to the tomb and finding the stone removed from the entrance. She runs back to where Peter and John where, where Peter and John are staying and tells them that the body of Jesus is missing and 
They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Note he says, we. It's not just Mary Magdalene. Those other women are there. Peter and John run to the tomb. John writes in details. Brags about how he helped me and Peter. And they look. It occurs to John what's happened. Not Peter. And they leave. But they go back. They go back. Confused. Mary stays at the tomb. She goes into the tomb. And two angels appear. To her. One of the head and one of the feet where, where Jesus had been. And she's crying. And they ask her, why are you weeping? You've got to love this. If, you don't, if you're not amused by the, what takes place right here, you do not understand. They had the greatest week just looking at this all over again. Those angels, they weren't ignorant. They knew why she was crying. They didn't ask her, why are you crying for their benefit? They knew why she was crying. She was crying because she was looking for the body of Jesus and it wasn't there. But to them it was ironic. They know Jesus is, they not only know why she's crying, they know Jesus is risen. They know Mary ought to be laughing as she's never laughed before. They're saying, why are you weeping when this ought to be the happiest day of your life? It's like crying at a wedding. Crying tears of grief. It's just, it doesn't fit through the eyes of these angels. Then she becomes aware that there's another person standing near the tomb. She assumes it's the gardener. Remember when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus in chapter 19 were burying the body of Jesus. We're told that this was a new tomb and it was in a garden. And so she assumes that this is the gardener. Taking care of the garden. She's asked by the gardener. Again, the same question. Why are you weeping? The question is being repeated. Jesus is chiding Mary. He's saying to her, Mary, don't you know what's happened? Hadn't you figured it out? Again, she shows her faith is absent. She has believed, but now she does not. And she replies, Sir, if you've taken his body away, please tell me where you put it, and I will go there and take it away. People, this is Jesus doing this. He's really enjoying this. He's no longer suffering from the scourging of the Roman whip or from the cruelty on the cross or from the hardship of God's judgment. He has borne the sin. He's borne the guilt. He's borne the judgment. 
He, and he's returned. His mission has been accomplished. And he will spend the next day and the next week and the month, next month revealing himself to the disciples. This was a good time. This was something for which you could look forward. And this was the first step. You see, this meeting with Mary Magdalene is by design. We've seen this over and over again. You never stumble into Jesus. If you are face to face with Jesus, it's by appointment. Period. This is planned. Jesus has chosen. This is the first person to whom I will reveal myself after the resurrection. You know how we respond to this. I responded this way. Look back at some former sermons. I respond by saying, wow, what kind of grace is this? That he appears first to a woman who had been a demoniac, who had been in league with Satan. What grace is that? When I saw that this week, I just said, oh, I wish there wasn't a tape of that sermon. John Sartell, do you really think it took more grace to save Mary Magdalene than it did to take save you? You think that Peter and John were more worthy than Mary of Magdalene to be the first ones to see? Listen, people, Jesus tells us all through the Gospels, we're all Mary of Magdalene. We look around the church sometimes. I do. We all do look around the church. You know how Jesus welcomes the prostitutes and the thieves. We look around to make sure we have prostitutes and thieves in the congregation. If not, we're not practicing the grace of Jesus. And that's, that's not a bad thing to do. Except for this. The minute we stop and look around to see. We ought to go look in the mirror. You want to see the prostitute? Go look in the mirror. You want to see the thief? Go look in the mirror. You want to see the sinner? Go look in the mirror. It's the height of hypocrisy to say, well, that's really something that he appeared to this, demon, this former demoniac. Like if you were standing there, you would be deserving. Well, Jesus no longer wants to draw this out it's time to reveal himself to her. How does he do this? Remember John is the theologian of the disciples? He approaches everything theologically, approaches Jesus, you know, the birth of Jesus and Luke completely. It's a, John's saying the same thing. He just approaches it theologically. Luke talks about the angels and Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem. John says, and the word became flesh. Incarnation happened. Well, this passage has profound theology in it. This is the reason. I, I love this encounter. It's one of my favorite passages in the gospel. How does, how does he reveal himself? He simply calls her name. He says, Mary, Mary. John would not leave this out of his record. It had to be there. Why? Remember, 
when Jesus was speaking to Pilate in John 18, just three days previously, and Pilate asked him, so you're a king. And John answered in Luke 18, 37, it's on your scripture sheet. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you see that last phrase? It's important. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He was saying, my people, their ears are tuned in to my voice. You know this. We're walking through this fallen world. And we hear the secular culture preaching to us constantly. And we hear it. And we say, that's not Jesus speaking. That's not God speaking. That's not scripture speaking. That's not his voice. We know it's not. But Jesus said far more than what he said to Pilate. If you don't look at anything else, look at this. In John 10, you know the passage. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Now look at verse 11 in John 10. I am the good shepherd. Look at verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. Verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. When John wrote about this encounter, he thought back to what he had written in chapter 10. <clears throat> I call them by name. And they knew my voice. In 1962, I was sitting in a college classroom at King College in East Tennessee. It was a Presbyterian college, supposedly a Christian college. But it was there for the first time in my life that I heard a minister, a minister now, deny the inspiration of Scripture and said, this is not God's word. And those miracles really didn't happen. And Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. The incarnation really didn't happen. I wasn't hearing that from the world. I was hearing it from a Presbyterian minister. I knew one thing. That wasn't the voice of Jesus. It was not the voice of the Good Shepherd. In verse 27 of chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They know my voice. That's the shepherd's voice. This is exactly what happened between Jesus and Mary of Magdala. That morning, outside the tomb, Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Look at the verse carefully. It says she turned. She had not been looking directly at him. But when the shepherd called her name, she knew who it was. Rabboni. She had called him that since the day he had delivered her from the demons. Rabbi, teacher. In, in Matthew's summary, of this. Read that the women just fell at his feet and grabbed on. That's what John says about Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala here. She seized his feet and would not let go. This is what she would do if 
your dearest, closest friend had been killed, taken, snatched suddenly. And the next day, I mean, you were just smitten with grief, torn apart. Your heart was torn out. You walked into your kitchen, and there he stood. Well, after he woke you up from fainting, what would you do? You would grab a hold of him. You just wouldn't go into the living room. You wouldn't just say, well, let's go watch television. You'd grab a hold of him and hold on like you never have before. That's what Mary did. Now, Jesus' response, this, her, her, his, his response has some ridiculous interpretations. People, it's not hard to understand what he was saying. He was saying, Mary, I'm not going anywhere. I've not yet ascended my father. I'm not going home. I am going home. Go tell the disciples, I'm going to be about the business of ascending. But Mary, I'm all right. I'm here now. I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I will be going home, but it's not yet. So it's safe to let me go. I'll see you later. What was happening? Here's, we've got to close this. Step back. What was happening with Mary and all the other disciples? People, they were learning to believe. They had believed, but the scourging and crucifixion of their Messiah was not inside their realm of reality. It was outside their frame of reference. A Messiah? The Messiah of Israel? He, he, he couldn't let himself be scourged by those awful Romans. He could not die. Oh, the shameful death on the Roman cross, not the Messiah. That can't happen. Now, you know what we do with this? We say, you know, hearing you say this this morning, John, I can tell you, if I had been there, I would have believed, I would have been right there at that tomb to watch him come out. I don't think you would have. I don't think I would have. You see, all of them, all of them, had seen Jesus make the blind to see, the deaf to hear. They had seen things that you've never seen by fear, just of command. And somebody gets up and, you know, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth, a dead man. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. They had seen it. He had told them after they identified him, gave it, given his true identity, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He told them in details about his death and about his resurrection. But they couldn't adjust their faith to his plan. Their plan was better. It didn't involve a cross and scourging. It didn't involve him giving his life a ransom for sin. He was go to take David's throne in Jerusalem and return Israel to a time of world domination. I know I probably would have been just like them. Not one of them thought he would rise. Folks, that's the point this morning. There are places where faith is hard for sinners. I used to think, what would, if I'd been in a German concentration camp where people were being scientifically slaughtered, gassed, by the millions. Would I 
have had faith there? It's a hard, big hard. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, great preacher in Germany at the time, preached about the evil of the Nazis. He was arrested. He was thrown in jail. He was there. He died. He was executed. He was hanged. But people are still talking who were there when he was in prison, talking about how he was a light and salt in those circumstances. How he brought the gospel to them to the very moment that he died. His faith did not waver. I'm reading the, a novel presently about a man whose wife and elementary age son were suddenly killed in a, in a robbery of a convenience store that had gone awry. They're killed by the thieves. Cruel time. This man was a believer. But he struggled. He lost his faith. How could Christ allow this to happen? How could God allow this to happen to me, to my family? He goes through a crisis of faith. If you've not been there, you will one day. You'll be there. Mary has a message for us. Don't you know for the rest of her life that she told other Christians about her three days of unbelief, her three days of misery and grief? Don't you know she said over and over again, Oh, people, I wish, oh, brothers and sisters, I wish I'd been waiting outside the tomb for his return. Faith would have completely changed her life in those three days. Many Christians go through a horrible time. A family member, somebody that's close. The Lord's taken them home and it just rips their heart out. What do you do with that? You're either going to believe that that person is with Jesus or that person is no more. One of the two. Which is it? That's the point of the resurrection. The only way you can say there with Jesus is that he rose from the dead. And you look at it and you may cry and you may weep, but you say, I'm going to see that person again. And death, you don't have the last word. Jesus does. It changes how you approach your own death. I thought about this all week. How would it affect me? If I'm faced with death, I'm going to be in the next few years. I'm 76 years old. Well, I get sick. Well, I'm just saying, well, at least death will end this sickness. I hope not. I hope I'm saying, I'm going to see Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. See, it changes everything. It changes everything. He's teaching us people to have faith in the darkest of places. And somebody says, how do you do that? How can you do that? 
And you say, because there's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. He's risen. Our final hymn is most appropriate. 